When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window. This is the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis on the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. Well, we're going to start with a bit of news. Duncan has something from France at the club Lille. And although we've been talking about Nicolas Pepe in the last few weeks, it's not about him, but it's about a player that Chelsea are interested in. Duncan, who is it? Well, just before we start, I just want to check that the two of you are compass mentors today because I understand that um, Ian was at the, the Brighton and Hove Albion Player of the Year awards um, last night, which uh, I think was probably quite a raucous affair. And obviously yourself, um, I've been on the on the Ramdan since uh, since picking up your uh, your Digital Journalist of the Year award and on Friday. So are, are you ready Check. for this? I'm, ple- I'm, I'm pleased to announce, Duncan, I did not win Brighton's Player of the Year award, although it was fiercely contested. <laughs> I, I am fine. Uh, I've sobered up finally. Um, it didn't stop me from being 45 minutes late for this podcast with my newfound confidence. <laughs> but, but less said about that, the better. When did you stop drinking? Oh, well, yesterday, I would say afternoon time, I, uh, I, I decided that enough was enough. Good effort, son. Good effort. That's, that's proper transfer when the podcast drinking. <laughs> and it's a trophy, one of those ones you can fill with champagne and, and, uh, and share it around. No, it's it's a lovely glass. You wouldn't, you wouldn't. You, there's no sort of cup element to it. It's just a nice ornamental piece um, that could be used as a weapon in uh, in difficult circumstances, but not as a chalice, unfortunately. Unfortunately, Mrs. McFarlane is, is now sleeping in the spare room as Johnny <laughs> as Johnny has his trophy in the bed with him. Alice <laughs> uh, Stephen Gerrard in the trophy. Poor Mrs. McFarlane. Many people have said that over the years. But before we get into that, because that's a whole other story, another podcast in of itself. Duncan, what's happening? Yeah, it's um, a player that uh, Chelsea have uh, started. I've been watching for quite a while, actually, but they've uh, they've made some inquiries as to his availability and and uh, what his financial demands would be to join them, and that's um, Thiago Mendes, a uh, Lille midfielder who has been part of their um, extremely impressive uh, French championship season um, where they look set to finish second in the French league. Um, recently beat Paris Saint-Germain 5-1 at home to stall Paris Saint-Germain's um, crowning uh, as, the, as the French champions again. Um, he is one of several players in the, the Lille squad who Lille are ready to sell this summer if they get good offers for. Um, he's been of interest to a number of Premier League clubs um, last summer. I think West Ham, Newcastle and Crystal Palace were looking at him, uh, didn't put together the money Lille required to take him. Um, he's now uh, a candidate for it. also um, Everton were considering him in um, January uh, when it looked possible that Paris Saint-Germain might take Idrissa Gay from them um, and they saw Thiago as a as a, a potential replacement for Gay. Um, but his performances this season have got to the level where he's now got Chelsea uh, looking at him, um, been scouting him extensively, I'm told, um, in the last few months. Obviously, any move is completely dependent on the FIFA decision. Um, and if FIFA decide that the, there will be no postponement of Chelsea's uh, two-transfer window ban, then potentially Cass's decision, if Chelsea go to Cass to ask um, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, that their um, transfer window ban be annulled or um, suspended in the summer. Um, but an interesting one, I think, from Chelsea's perspective, because it's not 
I don't think he'll be a particularly expensive purchase. I, th I think unless um, there's a lot of competitive interest in him, you're looking at probably 30 million euros um, for Thiago Mendes. Um, so not a top line addition um, to Chelsea squad if they're able to to make additions. Um, and maybe kind of representative of, of what Chelsea's ambitions are in the transfer market uh, if they are allowed to buy in the sense that they go, we might expect them to go for um, more economical purchases than they have done in the past, um, which I think is kind of in fitting with, with the way Roman Abramovich is looking at the club, his lack of interest in the club, uh, the fact that it's um, unofficially on the market. Um, and that he doesn't watch games anymore. So it's it's more um, Chelsea transfers are more about keeping things ticking over um, and keeping the finances uh, at a level where he doesn't put any additional cash into the, the club while he waits for someone to buy it from him and uh, and get out um, from, from that uh, ownership. Well, of course, Chelsea were playing Manchester United yesterday and it was a 1-1 draw. Uh, fairly drab performance once again from United, Ian. Um, are we now looking at a situation where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is starting to come under pressure um, at the club? Well, the most interesting thing, Johnny, is that he's not coming under pressure in the media. Um, I think Manchester United managers... Um, by nature of the enormity of the, the position. Um, if they had a record in their last nine games like Solskjaer uh, has now accrued, would questions would be being asked about whether or not they're the right person for the job. But um, what Solskjaer has always in his favour, and we've, we've seen um, very demonstratively, is that um, the fans love him because he's one of their own. <clears throat> and also, uh, you've got guys like the class of 92 um, who are are lead figures in punditry in, uh, and they have been passing the blame to the players rather than to the manager. However, I think what we saw against Chelsea uh, yesterday was another example of Solskjaer changing his team. Um, he clearly doesn't know what his best 11 is after more than four months in his job. Um, he is searching for solutions which are not um, forthcoming. I thought United played well in, in, in some elements of the game yesterday, but I think also interestingly, uh, two of their best players were out, are, are out of contract in Juan Mata and Ander Herrera. Uh, and that says a lot about what's happening um, upstairs, if you like, with uh, Ed Woodward and the Glazers regarding who gets new contracts and who doesn't and who's being valued and who, and who isn't. So... Um, some remarkable statistics uh, came out of the game um, because the lack of clean sheet means that Manchester United are now 20th of the 20 teams in the Premier League for home clean sheets this season. Um, only two recorded, which for any top six club is embarrassing. For Manchester United, I say it's humiliating. Um, more question marks over David De Gea's mindset, stroke performances, um, a shot, long-range shot from Anton Rudiger, which should have been uh, cleared easily, um, either out of play or even caught, gets spilled to Marcus Alonso, who then obviously converts that into a goal, <clears throat> an equalising one. That's um, three mistakes in four games which have led directly to goals for De Gea. And I believe that in the last 123 games he's played for Manchester United, before these last four, he's only had three mistakes in those. So it just shows you the disparity with regards to um, the average um, performance of De Gea in these last, well, last three weeks compared to his last two years, or three years even, um, with regards to um, him being culpable in that position. So there are clearly questions for, for Solskjaer to address, to me, he doesn't seem to be providing any answers. Um, <clears throat> and I think, Duncan, um, we've discussed this already, but maybe they were they rushed into appointing Solskjaer um, rather than waiting until the end of the season to see how things panned out. And they now have a question, and I, by that I mean Edward Wood and the Glazers. Do we um, 
sustain and continue with Solskjaer, give, give him a transfer window and money to spend? Or do we try and change manager in the summer and just admit and hold our hands up and say it was a mistake and get someone else in who actually is more quali- uh, qualified for the job? Yeah, look, I think there's some very interesting things going on at Manchester United at the moment. I know that after the Everton game, um, there was an inquisition amongst the players as to why uh, the team uh, formation and lineup was uh, leaked to um, to the public inside ten minute ten minutes of it being announced by the manager. Uh, and I think I'm told there were quite heated words said between the players as they were trying to work out who was doing this um, and blame being a portion saying, you know, we're in a situation where we can't afford uh, to have someone within uh, the dressing room giving away tactical details and giving away secrets to the opposition so quickly and, and making it easier for them to play. I think that that's telling um, about the... The state, the state of the dressing room are present. I think Solskjaer's response after the match was quite revealing in that um, Manchester United's sixth in the league. Uh, they're now three points off the, the Champions League qualifying place, if that place is going to be fourth, uh, behind Chelsea with an inferior goal difference. Um, but they're not out of it yet. There's still two games left. Manchester United play Huddersfield and Cardiff, so you'd have to think that they can. They, they believe they can get six points from those. Chelsea, Arsenal both have difficult Europa League semi-finals. Tottenham probably not catchable, but they've got a Champions League semi-final, and, and all of those clubs are are struggling at the moment. Um, it looks like none of them actually want to qualify. If you look at it, if you're just to look at the results, it's almost as though they were, they were playing for Europa League places and trying to avoid getting into the. Europe believe they're so bad so it's not impossible but then you hear Solskjaer after the game saying I don't think you can give up until it's theoretically over but of course it's a big mountain to climb Um, so not really setting a great tone as to his expectation of what the team can do and and almost admitting uh, that the task is beyond them which was surprising but I think what if you do the analysis, and we, we talked a lot about this on Friday, I think it's clear that this job is too difficult for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. It's not a surprise. If you look at his CV, you look at his history in the game, I hear people talking about being a young manager, an inexperienced manager. He deserves his chance at the club. He's not a young manager. He's, he's two years younger than Pep Guardiola. He's one year younger than Maurizio Pochettino. He's had one less season as a manager than Pochettino, two less than Guardiola. It's just that those seasons have been spent at Molde, relegating Cardiff, and then at Molde. So you know, by any uh, rational analysis, you would not give him the Manchester United job because his CV doesn't merit it. He's got the job because of his um, history as a footballer, his popularity as an individual. Um, and not only is he not does he not have the qualifications and the skill set for the job? He's actually been parachuted into a job which is probably the hardest in English football. You know, we, we've talked time and time again about how dysfunctional the club is, how bad the squad is, how bad the structure of the club is, that the Glazers um, are not interested in success on the field. It's not a primary interest. Their interest is in making money. That Ed Woodward has overseen um, a disastrous six years in, in his period as executive vice chairman. Um, I think that's hitting Solskjaer now. I think he's realising how difficult the job is. Um, he's not really been exposed to a lot of media criticism, as you point out, but you can see um, from his uh, behaviour in press conferences, his responses after games, from the, the constant changing of team selection of tactics, um, that he's struggling with it. And, it. and it's not a surprise, because the job is so hard. I mean, I, I, I would refer back to um, previous manager, Mourinho, coming into the club and talking to people close to him a few months after he'd taken the job and, uh, and just being told um, how bad the club was. 
how many things that, that needed to be solved, how many things that needed to be fixed, the, the difficulties working there. And that's Mourinho, who's worked at difficult clubs before, a series of difficult clubs, um, who will, would have done his homework to, um, to a great degree on Manchester United. But even he, um, you know, one of the top managers around with a wealth of experience, came in and was shocked by how dysfunctional Manchester United are. So no surprise that Solskjaer is struggling with it. And like you say, I think the Glazers are, have a very difficult, uh, and Edward would have a very difficult position now because any rational analysis would say, we made a mistake appointing this man. Um, he is struggling in so many areas. Um, if we give him charge of this transfer window, uh, we're likely to spend a lot of money um, supporting a manager who is unlikely to last very long in the position because he doesn't seem to have the wherewithal to dig us out of this situation. But if they sack him now, then they look stupid for making the appointment in the first place. And it would um, create, I think, a, a significant amount of anger with a large chunk of the Manchester United support because of their affection for Solskjaer, which Solskjaer absolutely deserves for his history as a player. And, uh, and, and the way he handles himself, uh, he understands the club, he loves the club, he, he deserves that affection. So if they get rid of him now, it would be like killing Bambi. But if they don't get rid of him now, then they go through another sum summer of turmoil, another summer without great direction in the transfer market, and they leave themselves in a position where they, they're likely to have to dismiss Solskjaer um, mid-season or, or at best at the end of next season, and then they have to find um, the correct man to replace him. Uh, and doing that, if it has to be mid-season, is always a difficult um, task for any club to achieve. So they, they kind of got Hobson's choice before them now. Um, they're, they're, and, and it, they make mistake after mistake after mistake, and this is the latest mistake, and it's now possibly setting them up for the, the mistake that comes after. The thing that's happening now as well, Duncan, is that they're being found out for their lack of knowledge of mm. football, never mind English football. Um, when Sir Alex Ferguson was in charge, um, his authority, his say, was first, last, always, and final. So um, no one questioned Ferguson's ability to, to run Manchester United, which he did, um, almost from top to bottom. Now, they encouraged, even forced his retirement because they wanted to be more in control. And in that period, as you've pointed out, it has been one disaster after another. This is a Manchester United team who have not been competitive for the Premier League title in six years. And that is almost unheard of in the modern era, um, certainly since Ferguson took control in 86. So they've created this monster um, and they are now obviously struggling to contain it, to tame it, or find a solution to whereby they turn it into something else, which is the sort of beautiful Manchester United that the fans so hanker after. Um, they thought they'd find it with Solskjaer um, after his performance as interim manager. But obviously, results since have proven much more difficult. And um, as has been pointed out by you, Duncan, as well, um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's first run of fixtures were, well, let's just say, very much on the easy side. So that he got that run of results, maybe, mm -hmm. um, and therefore the job on the back of something false. And since he's actually had to up against the um, PSG away um, accepted since he's had to uh, face much more difficult fixtures much more difficult challenges he's shown himself to be indecisive he's shown himself to be naive I think and also um, interestingly has very quickly changed the narrative of his coaching time to being negative about the players and saying that oh this is a big rebuilding job and there are players here who need to leave and who should be leaving, etc, etc. Now, if he has any autonomy or strength um, or indeed influence uh, in his position as Manchester United manager, then he will get the summer transfer window and he will, in his view, hopefully get to sign some players that he wants. But what will not save him 
<clears throat> is if he has a run of results in the next in the season starting in August, which have been similar to the ones of the last uh, five weeks, because you cannot be manager of Manchester United and lose nine, eleven, or eight and ten and one draw. You just can't do that. That will not sustain you um, because that's not what's expected, and it's not what Manchester United fans expect, whether you're a legend as a player or not. So you're right, this is a, a major issue now for the Glazers. I think there's a, a watershed moment now for their um, tenure at the club. Interesting to hear Solskjaer claim last Friday ahead of the um, Chelsea game that the Glazers should be applauded for the amount of investment they made in Manchester United. When every Manchester United fan and anyone who's got any common sense knows that in fact they've invested nothing in Manchester United. Their buyout of the club was leveraged on debt, which continues to be a, a, an anchor around the club's neck. And they continue also to take massive dividends and salaries out of the club as well. So their interest is, is nothing to do with Manchester United as a sporting enterprise. It's purely as a business um, product for them in order to make money for themselves and their families. So, you know... <laughs> I don't think this is sustainable in any way, shape or form um, with regards to what Manchester United means as one of the biggest clubs in the world. And if things are going to change, then they're going to change at the top. And that would mean someone coming to buy Manchester United out or um, a brave decision to get rid of their you know, um, general-in-chief, Ed Woodward, and bring in someone to make decisions actually based on football rather than economics, uh, and by that I mean a proper sporting director, not Mike Phelan, um, but someone who actually could um, give proper advice to the football department and make decisions um, which would benefit the football team rather than the commercial club. Yeah, I, I think you know, what Solskjaer said on Friday was if you look at the money that's been invested, they've invested loads of money. I think that that's a big mistake on his part to say that because that does not go down well with certain Manchester United fans who know what the Glazers have done. Um, as of uh, 2018, uh, the, Glazers, the Glazers' takeover had taken over a billion pounds worth out of Manchester United in terms of interest, costs, fees and dividends. And the Glazer family, um, six board members last in the last financial year took roughly 30 million pounds out alone um, in terms of dividends and directors salaries so the manchester united fans know that the glazers um, and that ed woodward are the fundamental problem here and Solskjaer obviously is their employee and he has to toe the line but i think when he when he talks about things like that he has to be careful um, just want to mention one thing. Um, it's one of these things that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, I, someone, uh, someone pointed out uh, the re resemblance of um, Uli Gunnar Solskjaer uh, to uh, Gollum uh, to me this week. And uh, it made me think, um, given the way that, uh, that uh, he's been treated by his former teammates, um, We've had the, the special one as the manager of Manchester United and now it seems we have the, the precious one as the manager of Manchester United because not one of them is prepared to criticise him um, for any of the mistakes he's made as manager. And I just wonder how long uh, that can last before the, you know, the pundits are paid very well to do their jobs and tell us where things are going right for managers and where things are going wrong for managers are brave enough to say um, Gunnar Solskjaer is making mistakes and he needs to be held to account for them. What's the next step for Manchester United now, Ian, in terms of the real politic of the situation? Do you get any sense that they will actually make a change? Because I suspect they won't. And what does that mean for next season? No, I agree with you, Johnny. I don't think they'll change manager, partly because a Volta Fatshi of that nature would be so humiliating for Woodward and the Glazers. Um, having appointed Solskjaer on the back of a very positive run of results, to then sack him on a, on a negative run um, would reflect very badly on them uh, and their management. So I suspect they'll throw money at it. That's normally the way in football, especially in the Premier League. Um, if you've got a problem, throw money at it and, uh, and see what happens. And, uh, and hope that, rather than expect, 
that things will get better. Um, the problem that then creates, obviously, is that if things don't go according to plan, you have to rip the whole project up and start again. So um, this is this is the the, the the kind of conundrum or the the, the kind of uh, the core of what's difficult about Manchester United next season. Um, I don't believe that any of the last managers since Ferguson was replaced have had full control over transfers. I think that's been a kind of um, collective decision, uh, which has been influenced greatly by um, Joel Glazer uh, and also Ed Woodward. Um, And therefore, I don't see why that would desist in terms of not being the, the same this summer. I, I do think they have a budget and they certainly have the wherewithal in terms of finances to invest heavily in players. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple of players either linked, stroke, actually signed for United, who maybe we, we're not aware of yet, but, but could be interesting. And, and two of those, I would say, um, because this is a transfer window after all, would be one would be Antoine Griezmann, who uh, here Atletico are keen to sell. The player himself has expressed his um, kind of, let's say, disappointment or resentment about the fact he didn't make the move to Barcelona last season nor to Manchester United the season before. Um, I think Griezmann's available uh, for around €100 million. And he's the kind of player who could spark Manchester United into life in terms of his creativity and his goals. Um, I think he's been declining at Atletico Madrid over the past three or four months in terms of his play. So um, I wouldn't be surprised to see that one resurrected. Uh, I think there's also the possibility that Gareth Bale is made available on loan, which makes sense on the basis that his salary is so huge at Real Madrid that if Madrid pay 50% of that, then um, they don't have to pay a transfer fee, but they can still indemnify um, around £12 a year in terms of wages for Bale. What well, are the golf not, courses like in uh, Manchester, mate? Well, I think Duncan's the man to answer that question, not me. Duncan, any thoughts? Any good courses? <laughs> not, not as good as uh, as Gareth Bale would like, I think. Um, <laughs> I, I don't. It's interesting that uh, Bale's. Uh, it's gone out in the Spanish press that Madrid might be prepared to loan him out, um, and you've also seen that Bale's agents um, indicating that. He might be interested in moving to China or America or the Middle East um, with some kind of off-record briefings that he's not going to accept a cut in salary. Um, Madrid are usually pretty canny about these things. Um, they tend not to take losses on their better players. They tend to uh, work the market until they get good transfer fees for players going out. In the, in the fashion they did with Alvaro Morata. It seems to me a bit early um, for this suggestion that they would let the player go on loan. Um, I, I would have expected them to wait to see if they can uh, sucker someone into spending um, at least a, a, a relatively significant transfer fee on bail uh, and take all the wages off their hands before um, suggesting that they might... Um, Take on uh, some, subsidise some of the wages themselves to let him let him go elsewhere. He's certainly not going to take a pay cut. You can see that um, from the noises coming from his camp that he will not take a pay cut to leave there. Um, I suppose the situation with Manchester United is is one that Madrid would find um, tempting to try and exploit in the hope that uh, uh, Woodward. Um, reverse the type and goes after a player of great um, commercial um, profile um, and uh, panics a bit and, and tries to take that opportunity to take him on. Um, but let's let's see what happens with Bale um, through the window. Um, Perhaps, I, Duncan, I, we, should do, we should do a pin sticker thing on this. What's the closest MLS franchise to Augusta National? <laughs> or, 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 or TPC Sawgrass? Well, I was thinking Carnoustie's a good course, Duncan. Maybe get him up at Dundee United. He's not Dundee United's level anymore, I'm afraid. We need we need players who can get on the pitch every week, not not uh, not stay in the bunker. 
Right, I'm going to move this on with that rather bizarre uh, image of Christian Bale hacking his way around Carnoustie. Um, Christian well, Bale? Christian Bale. Yes, <laughs> Batman. Gareth Bale, even. Yes, I must be still drunk from the weekend. But I'm going to move us on, regardless, um, to the Champions League games that are upcoming. And uh, Duncan Spurs seem to be in a little bit of sticky form. Uh, ahead of their tie against Ajax. Um, how do you fancy their chances? Because this will not be an easy game. It won't be an easy game. Um, I think, you know, chatting to a, a coach about this um, last week, and his argument about Ajax was that they're a very good team, but they really shouldn't have got as far as they should. Um, and the reason they did is because they played Real Madrid um, and Juventus, who both assumed they could outmuscle Ajax and kind of swat them aside, regardless of the fact that they had um, some very good, talented players on, on their team and didn't do their homework properly. So they didn't set up with game plans um, to nullify Ajax's strength and to take advantage of their weaknesses. And as a result, they got caught out um, in second legs at home both times and, and both ended up um, embarrassingly eliminated by Ajax. If his theory is right, and, and I, I see the sense in it, um, then there's, you know, there is an opportunity for Tottenham. Um, you'd expect Maurizio Pochettino to do his homework. He's usually pretty good at analysing opponents and, and coming up with tactical systems to play to play them doesn't always get it right but he does do that kind of homework and he can he is good at um at implementing different systems like i.e get, getting the message over to his players and setting them up to work in different ways and matches and, and and has been capable of changing it during matches as well so i think that will give um tottenham an advantage over madrid and juventus we we might not have expected um, but you're right, the form isn't um, promising and uh, you know, they, they have a significant number of injuries at the moment. So you, you would have to think that Ajax are fancy their chances going in, into that match. Um, what we should see are two good football games. Um, I mean, I'm looking, very much looking forward to watching both of those games and also the, the Barcelona-Liverpool um, matches, which again I think should produce high-quality matches. Um, for us to to watch and enjoy over the next two weeks. With regards to the, the Spurs Ajax, um, I'm intrigued by the fact that um, you've got players like um, Christian Eriksen, Jan Vertonghen, um, who are steeped in Ajax's tradition, who came through the ranks there, played for long periods. I'm not a big fan of people saying that you get an advantage. Um, when you've got players in your current squad who used to play for your opposition in terms of um, giving an insight. But with Ajax, the, um, the philosophy of that club, <clears throat> as well as uh, the ethic of how they play, is so entrenched and so much um, part of their tradition that I think that knowledge of those ex-players to pass on to teammates and to coaches will be, I think, a factor in how Tottenham play against them. I also can see in the way that Tottenham have performed in their recent matches a downturn. <clears throat> I, would, I don't want to say of interest because I don't think any football player or, or team ever goes out to lose a game. I don't think that's ever the case. But I think quite realistically, and um, I think you, know, you can expect this to be the case, that when you're on the verge of creating history, by becoming the first Tottenham team to play in a Champions League stroke European Cup final, then your focus is shifted and it cannot be um, denied that players are, again, I'm not saying less committed, but don't want to get injured, don't want to exert themselves too much in games which effectively don't mean that much because they're in a relatively comfortable position in terms of qualifying for Champions League through Premier League placements this year. So you get this downturn in form 
which is natural <clears throat> in these situations. And therefore, I expect them to up their game against Ajax uh, and therefore perform in the way that we know Tottenham can. I think without a Harry Kane, they've actually done very well. And Hoyman Sun's obviously been the star performer, uh, as well as Ericsson himself, um, in terms of stepping up to the plate in the last uh, three matches. So therefore, I think in the sense of you know, where, does it, where will Tottenham do best, I think they will do best in the Champions League between now um, over these next two games and obviously if the final they make it rather than um, the last two Premier League matches. Okay, and the other game is obviously Liverpool against Barcelona, or the other tie, should I say. Um, Liverpool uh, going into this in top form, but under the immense pressure of this challenge from Manchester City to win the Premier League, while Barcelona have tied up their league at the weekend, Duncan. They have, um, which is obviously going to be a help to them in that they can, uh, they can rest players in the, the match between the two legs. Um, I, you know, as we said last week, I think this tie sets up very nicely for Liverpool. Um, we know they can defend. Uh, we know they can press uh, defenders who want to overplay the ball. Um, we know they can set um, pressing traps in midfield and turn over uh, possession quickly and turn it into goals. Um, and all of those things, that's all of the things you'd want to have when you play against a team like Barcelona. Um, so I, I think this is the toughest tie. And Barcelona want this Champions League badly. Um, very interesting interview with uh, Luis Suarez in the Guardian last week, where he talked about um, Lionel Messi um, telling the supporters at the start of the season um, that he wanted to win the, the Champions League again this season that was his target for the season and the and the players go into Messi and says, Well you better you better play well this season if you're putting that pressure on us. It's down to you, mate. Um and I I think that's the this this is the game for Barcelona. If they get through this one, then they have to be very much favourites in a in a one on one match, one off game and in, in being played in Spain um against either Tottenham or Ajax to to get the Champions League back. Um and that, and having that degree of desire and focus um, from one of the two best players in the world um, against you is the is the difficulty for Liverpool. But tactically, in terms of team shape, in terms of uh, the kind of opposition Liverpool would like to have in a match like this, if they're going to play a really good team, I think Barcelona are perfect for them. Um, and you have to say that um, physically. That they've dealt with this running very well. You know, they're not dropping their energy levels. Uh, they are performing consistently in matches. We had probably three months of the season where they they barely produced um, a performance of the level they're capable of. But the last few weeks, they're getting much closer to the level they're capable of, and they're consistently playing very well. So, um, again, a fascinating tie. Uh, to watch and, and I, I, I really difficult to call I'd, I'd say this is a coin toss between the two teams I think Liverpool's have been impressive Liverpool have been impressive in the way that they have maintained their momentum and um, to me they look like a team that are playing on adrenaline um, from what I've heard from inside the Liverpool sort of camp if you like is that the, the training sessions are very very light there's no reason for them to be doing a lot of physical or even tactical work now because they know exactly how they play. They go out and play the same way week in, week out. And that Klopp has effectively said, look, I trust you to simply win matches based on what we've worked upon for the last two years and um, and what you can achieve. And so they're playing with a bit of freedom now, which I think they didn't have for some of last season in that the... Um, their mindset is different. They, um, and this is something which I think Manchester City have struggled with a little bit, uh, with Guardiola, who overthinks. And we saw that, obviously, in the uh, quarterfinal defeat uh, in Champions League. And so, with Liverpool, I think they, their best chance against Barcelona is to play in exactly the way they've been playing in the Premier League and Champions League for the last 
four months, and that is just to play their natural game on the counter-attack, score goals. Um, they've obviously got a very good defensive record. Virgil van Dijk named, obviously, PFA Player of the Year um, in the last 24 hours. Uh, that doesn't make much difference to him because I'm sure that he would um, rather have a trophy and a, and a winner's medal at the end of the season um, than the uh, PFA's Player of the Year, um, despite the fact that he's the first defender to win it since um, Duncan's great friend John Terry uh, in 2004. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it's a big advantage for Barca to have tied the La Liga title up, certainly, um, last weekend before they, they faced these two ties. But at the same time, I think it's harder to play a team who are still challenging on two fronts, and that's obviously in the Premier League and in Champions League, because that adrenaline that I mentioned and that momentum takes you into these games on your on the very edge of, of your game. Uh, and I mean that mentally and physically. And therefore, uh, the desire to achieve and the desire to continue that momentum is very much um, a, a prescient factor with regards to what re- result you achieve as well. So I, I, I think Liverpool might just shade the, uh, the, the two legs of the semi-final and make it to the final. Um, but, uh, as Duncan says, um, Leo Messi promised the, the Barcelona fans a trophy at the start of the season. Suarez said, well, you better turn up. I think he's been doing quite a good job of that so far in terms of turning up. Um, I don't think he's let anyone down. So it's going to be fascinating to see. Um, over the next couple of weeks, I think I think Jurgen Klopp's been very clever in the sense that he's he's telling the Liverpool players if you win every game um, in the Premier League to the end of the season, you will have achieved. You'll have done everything you can do, and and if Manchester City beat you by um, a point because of that, um, you're you're still going to be heroes. Um, and I and I think that's helping Liverpool, and I think you you also see that. Um, kind of preparation going on around the club and the, the, the talk about this Manchester City team are so good they're going to get so many points um, they're going to do it two years in a row we're going to finish with more points than just about every other Premier League champion in history therefore we are heroes um, regardless um, of what happens. and I, I, think that, I think that helps the players I, I don't uh, buy that not... Duncan, I don't buy that Shankly said himself, seconds nowhere. No one remembers the runners-up. And despite the fact that Liverpool would, would have won the Premier League title every year of the last 14 seasons with the points total that they have now, means nothing if they don't win it this season. Um, I, I just think that, you know, it, it will be a devastating blow to them if, you know, uh, two weekends from now, they miss out on the Premier League title by a point to Manchester City and then they have to, they've got, I think it's a two week or maybe three week way actually into the Champions League final. And if they're in it, what did they be thinking about in that time? Will they be trying to regroup and be positive about their chance to still win a trophy? Or will they be lamenting the fact that they were nearly history makers? They were the, the nearly heroes of the great city of Liverpool to bring the title back to Anfield after 29 years. I'm not sure. I, I think there's a, a real dilemma there for Klopp. I, I, I get what you're saying with regards to him being clever and saying, whatever happens now, you guys have been amazing. But at the same time, uh, in players' consciousness, they will always ask themselves what might have been in terms of winning the title or not. And if that carries on into the Champions League final, if they make it past Barcelona, then I think that they will be carrying a, a psychological handicap going into that game I think I think yeah you can have an argument about the Bill Shankly thing and I, I, I'm pretty sure I'd come down on your side when it comes to that but I, I think from a psychological perspective in terms of getting them to win their games getting them away from this mentality of uh, Liverpool always blow it at the end um, we've got to do it this year because um, it's going to be 30 years soon um, what happened last time Liverpool got close to the title. I think, I think they've managed to more or less eliminate that by saying, if you win all your games, you'll have done all you can and you're heroes and it's just down to Man City being exceptional. 
So um, I think it's working in terms of getting them to the end of the season uh, from a Premier League perspective. But yeah, uh, realistically, if you don't win, you don't win. And, and the analysis will be different um, from the outside than it is uh, around about Anfield and amongst the Liverpool supporters. But I, I think Klopp's handling them well and getting this, this run of wins um, by telling them, just do what you, you have to do concentrate on that and he's actually getting them to do what they have to do because um, I would have predicted that they would have dropped points by now. I think most people would have predicted they've dropped points by now but they haven't. What did the Klopp Ducks say, Jody? Quack. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> what else would they say? Yeah. <laughs> what are they, what are, they, they, are, they are they saying? Are they saying Duncan's quackers? Is that what you're saying? One of the things that I read in uh, a magnificent Ken Early column uh, today was that uh, Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool have been punished the least amount of times on the counter-attack of any team in the Premier League, which uh, is quite an incredible feat of organisation when you think about the attacking nature of their fullbacks. Andy Robertson with 11 assists, the most ever for a fullback in the Premier League, and uh, Alec- Trent Alexander-Arnold, who's on nine, so we'll probably um, break that record for a second time in one season. Well, if that statistic is accurate, and I think that's quite a hard one to accurately measure, it's probably more a reflection of the fact that they absolutely pack the middle of the park, um, play a very narrow midfield, uh, and they've got two good centre-backs, and they've played, um, they haven't pushed up the field in any way, any shape or fashion like they did last season. They were not uh, using that aggressive pressing as a as a tool to win games in the way they did previously. So it's probably, well, it's no surprise they're not conceding as many goals in the counter-attack as, as they have done previously because they're, they're essentially quite a defensive team in, in the way they're set up. Yeah, just to clarify, Duncan, it's, uh, his stat is that Liverpool are yet to concede a single goal on the counter-attack in the Premier League all season. I find that absolutely impossible to believe. You'd have to have a very definition of what a counter-attack is. Mm. is it, what are you saying? Every goal comes from a set piece. He doesn't go into the detail. I'm just putting it out there. Well, look, if it it's, a bit, it's, a bit like, it's a bit like the statistic that um, Virgil van Dijk hasn't been dribbled past this yeah. season. Again, I find that for all his excellence and the quality of defending that no player has taken uh, a ball past him um, at some point in an entire Premier League season, it's um, kind of beggars how the definition of what dribbling past it is from from a statistical perspective. I was going to say that I've just had a text from James Milner who said, it's all true, I am brilliant. <laughs> PFA Player of the Year, James Milner. It was all a big mistake. Van Dijk was never the winner. Right, okay, it's now time for the section of the podcast where I ask Ian and Duncan for their heroes and villains from the weekend's action. I'm going to start with you, Ian. Can you give me your hero? Difficult one, this, Johnny, because it's hero and villain, um, because unfortunately I can't contextualise it in any other way. Um, I don't think anyone would have been um, unmoved by Marcello Bielsa's um, instructions to allow Aston Villa to score an unopposed goal um, on the basis that they themselves had scored a goal when um, a Villa player was down injured. Uh, in terms of sporting um, conduct, that certainly um, ranks up there. But however, we have to put, as I said, this in context of the fact that this is a guy who admitted to unsporting conduct with regards to spying on other teams' training as a matter of course. Um, I would also throw in the caveat as well that um, Leeds were well, almost impossible for them to qualify um, for promotion um, without uh, going to the playoffs at the time. So it's almost like he was making a confession at the same time as um, holding himself up to be a saint. So hero stroke villain um, would be Marcelo Bielsa, with a special mention for Jozo Saminovic for scoring the winning goal as Celtics number five in the 67th minute against Kilmarnock on Saturday uh, in the wake of the great Billy McNeil's um, death last week. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. 
Duncan, who is your villain, given that we've got Bielsa kind of as a hero and a villain from you in there? But uh, who do you put as the person that's ruined your week? He's not ruined my week because it's completely expected behaviour from this individual. But um, I think if we're, uh, we're talking about the Leeds United Aston Villa game, then uh, we have to identify the real villain of the piece, um, who, after Bielsa had instructed um, his players to allow Aston Villa to score unopposed um, in that amazing gesture, which most people have credited as that, um, decided to berate Bielsa and, uh, and swear in his face and, uh, and try to pick a fight with him on the touchline. Who else would do such a thing? None other than John Terry, um, the man who could uh, pick a fight in his own wardrobe. Now, was that because, Duncan, <laughs> that he was upset that he wasn't allowed to get stripped? And go on the pitch and score the goal himself. That was the big question. <laughs> and, take, and take the glory. It's possible. Uh, has anyone checked to see if he had his shin pads on underneath that suit on the touchline? <laughs> Duncan, what's wrong with John Terry? He seems like a really nice guy. Have, have you watched John Terry? <laughs> <laughs> From afar? Better that way, believe me. <laughs> Okay, guys, well, we're going to leave it at that, I think. Um, it's been a productive podcast as usual, full of insight and incident. We'll be back on Wednesday to answer your questions, so get them in on Twitter. To continue the debate, you can follow us at Transfer Podcast. You can contact me at Johnny R. McFarlane, Ian at Garbo SG, and of course, Mr. Duncan Castles is at Duncan Castles. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping on to iTunes and giving us a five-star review as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Wednesday, thanks for listening.